Uh, tonight we have a long chapter ahead of us. It's chapter 22 of 1 Kings. It's the very last chapter of 1 Kings. And next Thursday evening we'll get right into 2 Kings, which I'm really looking forward to. But uh, just to kind of recap what happened last week, you remember that Ahab, who was the king of Israel, the northern ten tribes, he has a, a winter home, if you will, in, in, the, in, um, in Jezreel, and it is a place just a little bit southeast or southwest of, of the Sea of Galilee, as you and I would know it. But the capital, the capital where the king would normally be, is even further south than that, uh, a little bit south and, and even more west in the, uh, in the area of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern ten tribes. It was originally a threshing floor uh, that um, Omri, who was one of the sons of Jeroboam, or the son of Jeroboam, or you know, grandson or whatever, he was the one who actually um, bought the threshing floor from a man named Shemer. And this man named Shemer uh, received the funds and it's basically a hill. It's great for threshing wheat or whatever, grain. And Omri uh, changed the capital, which was Tirzah, whom Jeroboam made it as capital. And then he, uh, Omri was the one who bought this, this threshing floor uh, from Shemer. And Omri decided to name this city on a hill after the, after the original owner. So he called it Samaria from Shemer. And so he gives it to him. But now Ahab, in his winter times, uh, he goes up a little further north. And um, at some point during the year, he goes up there to Jezreel, to his other palace up there. And remember that he saw a vineyard next to him who belonged to Naboth. And Ahab wanted this vineyard for his own vegetable garden. And it really wasn't right for Naboth to give his, or sell or even give to the king uh, this plot of land because that plot of land goes to his family and it stays within his own tribe. And that's really important. And that, that was back in the Old Testament law. And, um, and so he, he, he tells the king, I can't sell it to you. And the king got mad. And so he did what every powerful man does. He goes home crawls into bed with his face toward the wall and pouts. And that's exactly what Ahab did. <laughs> and Jezebel hears about it. She goes, but you're the king of Israel. You can do whatever you want. My daddy, she would say, who was the Ephbaal, uh, the king of uh, Tyre, he would just take control over the land, and you can do that. In fact, if he's not going to give it to you, I'll secure it for you. So she takes his signet ring, and she gets a letter, and she signs it with Ahab's signet ring and sends it to the city where Naboth lives and says, make a fast and, and put Naboth, or Naboth in, a, in a place of prominence, and then, we're, then we'll have, a, have a two, two men come in and uh, basically tell everyone that this man is committed a, you know, a blasphemy against God and against the king. And without any due process, they grab the man and they take him out and they stone him to death outside the city walls. Jezebel comes back to Ahab and says, guess what? Your plot of land is yours now. And she did all of this. And he was complicit. He didn't stop her. He should have stopped her, but he didn't. And then Elijah the prophet comes and he con uh, condemns, the, the God condemns Ahab for what he has done. He's taken an innocent man, 
property that didn't even belong to him, and he allows his wife to be the person to uh, secure this land and then to kill its owner. And, and remember that Elijah, uh, by the hand of God, sends uh, Elijah to Ahab, and he says, um, and, and the Lord says to him, Behold, I will bring calamity on you, and I will take away your posterity, and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free, and take your house from the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And, and, and God even goes a step further, and he says, Oh, by the way, concerning your wife, Jezebel, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab. Notice in verse 25 of chapter 21, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself. You know, we talk about selling, yourself, selling your soul to the devil. We, we, talk, we use that phrase. Well, this is what he did. He basically sold himself as merchandise, to do evil and wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Now, he was complicit in it, and he was evil, an evil man, but his wife was like the icing on the cake, and she was the one to introduce him and, and spur him on and, and kind of be a catalyst in this wickedness that he would do. And we will find out that God will come true on his prophecy and we'll see that in 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, Jezebel will be put to death. And it is a horrible death. And when you read it, it just makes you kind of recoil because it's just so awful the, the way this whole thing came out. But you know what? I think sometimes we take a, a very easy path with sin. We, we don't really take it seriously. We don't realize how ugly it is to God. And it really is important that we take serious concern over our own hearts today. We can't just allow ourselves to, you know, there's an old phrase, you know, if it feels good, do it. Well, our culture is right now the product of a generation for probably many generations that have caved into that slogan and said, yes, if it feels good, do it. We've done that. And where has it gotten us, honestly? Ask yourself the question, when you were living in the world before you came to Christ, did the motto, if, if it feels good, do it, where did it get you? Did it lead you into a great place? Was it a place that you could honestly say that, you know, I'm here because the Lord put me here? Or is it, have you found yourself in a pit of despair? Have you found yourself heartbroken? Have you hurt people around you because of your adherence to the slogan, if it feels good, do it. Yes, the flesh, it, it, it's all about the flesh. But see, we've been called to something greater. We've been called to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been called to live as Jesus lived. And that's a very tall order. I can't do it in this natural flesh. It is impossible for me to do it. The harder I tried before I came to Christ, the more I failed. And the more I was fixated on my sin. And therefore, all I did was think about it. And I continued this perpetual thing of just messing up one, you know, at, right after another. Have you, does that ring a bell? Does it... Can anybody say tonight that sounds like me, <laughs> especially before you came to Christ? But he's given us such a wonderful heritage, Jesus has. He set us free from the penalty 
of death and hell. He set us free from this old nature of being so dominated by it. When the Spirit of God comes into you, like I was joking earlier, there's a new commander in town. There's a new sheriff. And he's got way bigger guns. And he is victorious before he even pulls them out. He's already won the battle. Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwelling you, you and God as a majority. Actually, God all by himself is a wonderful majority, but you and God alone, with nobody, no help from the world, is a majority because nothing can stand in your way if you're walking with him. He can do more through one person than he can do through an army if he chooses to. God, is, his arm is not slack. It is not weakened. He's not an impotent God. No, he is all-powerful, and there's no one that can stand against him and challenge him. They will all fall and crumble. And see, that's the God that we serve. Can I see a big smile on your faces? <laughs> because that to me is the greatest news. I know that he loves me and I know that he died for me and I know that my sins have been forgiven, not because of anything that I've done, but because of all the things that he did. And the single act of worship, the one greatest act of worship on the cross at Calvary, many thousands of people in history have been crucified, but there's only one who had the very blood of God who dared to to allow himself. He was no martyr. He willingly laid down his life for us. And that victory on the cross is what I put my hope and my faith in. That's the, oh, my only reason I'm going to heaven is because of what he has done. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my performance. I can't do enough good works. And I love that. And Ahab was missing the boat. And yet, remember last week we talked about God's grace and mercy even upon this evil man. God gave him so many opportunities and just little um, uh, tokens of grace and mercy. It, you know, uh, it was just so wonderful to see how God had extended to this evil man opportunity and then to even see Ahab, this idolater, to see him at times even crushed, be, you know, be, be you know, humbled himself, when the prophet would tell him something, this man had something in him, and God saw it. Nobody else saw it, but God saw that there was something in this guy. Yes, he deserves to die, because he's a horrible, wicked idolater, but God saw deeper than the externals. He even saw deeper than his, uh, the things that he had done. He, but by the way he responded to things that were judgment that was coming against him, he wept. He put himself in sackcloth. He did these things, and God says, Elijah, do you see how this man responds to the word of God? He goes, because of that, I'm not going to do this evil upon him in his time. It's going to happen in his son's life, but not his, because he humbled himself. And isn't that wonderful to think that regardless of how far you've gone, God sees the little, the little flame in your heart? And instead of extinguishing it like the world does, he's the one who's fanning it, trying to, as it's smoking. Have you ever been building a fire? 
You know, if you, if you, if you go out and you do any camping and you, and you actually try to make a fire, like for real, and not use those little sticks that I use to cheat, I put them underneath the wood and I light them and I sit back and I wait and it's done. But, you know, to actually do it with leaves and the match and, and try to get a fire done and then you're fanning the leaves and then you put a little stick on a few twigs and then you're, you're doing all that. Well, God, he sees that little flame and he does everything to encourage it. What, what, what does the Bible say? You know, a bruised reed he's not going to break. And a smoking flax he is not going to quench. But rather, he's going to blow on it. He's going to encourage it. And he does it in Ahab's life. We've seen it last week. And we're even going to see God's grace in this evil man's life tonight. Because God forewarns him. He tells him exactly what's going to happen if he goes through with what he plans to do. God tells him, Ahab, if you do this, you are not going to live. You're going to die in this battle. And it would have been good for him to say, you know what, I believe God because, you know, every time he's told me this stuff through my enemy, Elijah, it's come to pass. So I think I'm going to listen this time. But does he listen? No, he doesn't listen. And it will cost him his life. And how important is obedience to the word of God when God tells us to do something? See, I don't read this so that I can tell other people about how they should live. See, there are Christians who read the Bible and they say, oh, this is a great, this is a great verse from my aunt. You know, she double-crossed me and, boy, this verse is going to stick her right in the heart and I'm going to text it to her right now. You know, and then we're, you know, we, we get that attitude and we're just like, we use the Bible, this wonderful, sweet word of God, we use it like a sword. It is. It's sharper. It's, what does the Bible tell us? His word is a sharp, it's a two-edged sword, able to discern between the bones and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. So fine, we don't even know. And yet he knows, he, he knows the intents of our heart. And the word of God is there to search it out. But we can't use it on other people. Use it on you first. Let's use it on ourselves. More importantly than anything else, Lord, this... Let's read now. So after this issue with Ahab taking this vineyard over and Jezebel doing the work for him, forging his signature, if you will, and then killing the man and when he was an innocent man. So after all of this, and after Elijah comes to him and says, Ahab, because you have done this, you're in a heap of trouble. And he lays it, lays it out there for us in the last part, you know, from really verses, uh, you know, 20 uh, of chapter 21, uh, verses 20 down through, um, you know, 24, 25. And so now we get into this last chapter, and I'm just going to read the first 40 verses just to kind of get the context of it, and then we're going to go back and just take a look at a few things. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings 22. Now notice, after this, now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel, and then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And you might be scratching your head, why would this wonderful king of Judah go down you know, to visit this ungodly king? Hmm. Verse 3, And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And so he said to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses 
Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire of the word of the Lord today. Thank God. (laughs) Will you please inquire of the name of Jehovah today? And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? And they all said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. (laughs) You know, I have to comment on this just really quick. I wonder the tone of his voice. You know, I I just wonder, you know, because inflection means everything, isn't it? And I would love to, you know, to know the inflection of how Jehoshaphat say that. (gasps) Don't let the king say so. I I just, I wonder what kind of... um, Anyway, I, I'm ill, so i got to go on here. I'm really not ill. I mean, I just, whatever. So here we go. And Jehoshaphat said, let, let not the king say such things. And then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before him. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaiah, or uh, uh, Chenaana, I'm going to butcher that name, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. And then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, now listen, the words of the prophets with, with one accord encouraged the king, please. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go, prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So the king said, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then he said, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains. Finally, the prophet comes clean here. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. And let each one return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by, and on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one in this manner And another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look. 
Micaiah says to them, The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. And so the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace and the Lord has not spoken by me, or I'm sorry, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. And so the king of Israel, Ahab, he disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Assyria, or king of Syria, excuse me, had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Fight with no one, small or great, but only with the king of Israel. And so it was. When the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. Therefore they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And it happened when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. And now a certain man drew a bow at random with an arrow, and he let it go. And struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. And so he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians, and died at evening. And the blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. Then as the sun was going down, a shout went out throughout the army, saying, Every man to his tent and every man to his country. And so the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed, according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab rested with his fathers, and then Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. And so we're just going to stop right there and, and kind of get into this, and then we'll get to the rest of the chapter. But just to kind of give you the context of what's happening here, and let's go back to, to verse 1 here. And, and I just want to encourage you to read Second uh, Chronicles chapter 18, uh, because Second Chronicles 18 is the parallel chapter to this passage that we're looking at tonight. Uh, it's pretty much verbatim what we're reading here. But as you know, First and Second Chronicles were the chronicles of the kings of Judah. They were the chronicles of the kings of Judah, not the kings of Israel. That, that whole body of uh, scripts or manuscripts is non-existent or it hasn't been found. But the first and second chronicles are all about the kings of Judah. And so, um, so check that out because uh, there'll be a little bit more information there in chronicles. 
So let's go back to verse 1, and, and it says that there was uh, three years that had passed. And notice in verse 2, it says that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And one thing you have to know is that Israel is, um, even though Israel, or, or Jerusalem, um, is that, that's the, Jerusalem is the place for the king of Judah, any time that you, that you leave Jerusalem, you're always going down. So even if you're going north, west, east, south, it doesn't matter, you are on a mountain range. Israel, or Jerusalem, excuse me, is on a mountain range. It's called the Mount Moriah. It's actually a mountain range. And Jerusalem is at the top of it. And so wherever you go from Israel, you'll notice this throughout the scripture, Whoever's in Jerusalem, when they go anywhere, they're going down. Even though you're looking at a map and going, wait, they're going north, they're going up. Because it's talking about the elevation from where it's coming from, from where they're coming from, down to wherever it is, regardless of, of where the city is. In Psalm 48, it says this, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So it's this highly elevated city, a city on a hill that can't be hid. And so notice that Jehoshaphat, he goes down now from Jerusalem. And that ought to tell you something, just a little bit of foreboding, a little bit of foreshadowing. Is he going up? No, he's going down. <laughs> he, he's going down, and it's not a good thing. Uh, Jehoshaphat, who was one of Israel's, one of Judah's best kings, not all of them were great. There was a handful that were really good. All the northern ten tribe, or all the northern ten, uh, the, the northern tribe, the northern kingdom, all the kings were evil, and most of, many of them in the southern kingdom of Judah were evil too. But there were a handful of gems. There were a handful of men that were kings that were what we call reformer kings. They they followed the Lord with all of their heart, and um, and, and and you have to ask yourself because Jehoshaphat was a good king, you wonder what he was doing coming to the king of Israel who was a known idolater and an evil king. Perhaps Jehoshaphat thought he could be a positive influence on Ahab. It's perhaps. We don't know the motives other than that they're both now going to go to battle against a common enemy, and that common enemy was Syria. Syria to the north, uh, to the northeast of, of, of Israel. And so you got Israel here, you know, and King Ahab, and you got Jehoshaphat with the, the southern two tribes. So uh, obviously Israel is more concerned about this impeding um, force, the Arameans, the Syrians, from coming down from the north. And so maybe Jehoshaphat is thinking to himself, well, if I can help my brother in the north, if we can come together and fight this enemy, then I'm actually doing Judah a favor too, because if we fight them on his ground in the north, then it's that much less likely he's going to invade us. Maybe that was his motive. And that, that was, that'd be a good enough motive. But he was becoming confederate with an evil man. Does that sound like a good thing for a, a, a believer? To be unequally yoked? We read that in Corinthians. And so it says in verse 3 that the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead is ours? Now, Ramoth Gilead is a city that belonged to the, certainly the 
King Ahab, the king of this northern ten tribes. And Ramoth-Gilead was way on the eastern side. If you think of the Jordan Valley, like the Sea of Galilee in the north, and then you got this Jordan River going down and then the Dead Sea, this Ramoth-Gilead would be over on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan, and today what you and I would call Jordan. And it would be over there. And, and it was a city that the Aramaeans, the Syrians, were going to attack. And so this is where they go. And so notice in verse 4 what Jehoshaphat says to Ahab. You know, because Ahab wants him to go with them to, uh, to, to bring Ramoth-Gilead back into their sphere of influence because Syria had taken that city, a very important city, and has kind of uh, taken it over. And so he's like, help me go t- get this city back. And so he does. And, and what does he say in verse 4? I'm really puzzled by this. Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and my horses as your horses. I find this very puzzling because Jehoshaphat had a whole different spirit than Ahab did. He made his mistake. This is one of the biggest mistakes that Jehoshaphat made in his career. Other than that, he was a fantastic leader. He actually brought a revival, in a sense, back to, back to Judah and Jerusalem. So what is he doing? Perhaps his motive is what I said prior, perhaps. Later on, it's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 8 that Ahab would ultimately give his daughter, Athaliah, to Jehoshaphat's son, who was going to, after Jehoshaphat dies, his son, Jehoram, would be married to this woman, Athaliah, who was Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. I don't know about you guys, but if I knew that Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, I think I'm going to stay away from her. Because her mom and dad were really bad, and she was evil as well. So, you know, I think I would just, you know, when I heard her name, I would just run the opposite direction. But no, he makes this league with them. And you can see just the breakdown in the, of humanity, you know, that we're just so prone to wander, aren't we, all of us? And God, throughout the Bible, it, it's a proof text that apart from him, we are helplessly and hopelessly lost. Apart from obedience and listening to him, we are a mess. We are a mess. And kings did this kind of thing to intermarry with like that to, uh, for their own, for goodwill and security in their alliances. And yes, they were brothers. I mean, think about it. They all came from Jacob. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. He had 12 sons, Jacob, remember? Levi and Manasseh and Judah and all the rest of them. And they all went into, Jeru- into Israel, into Canaan. They took over that land and they separated the, the different areas and they, they had their tribal allotments of land. So in a sense, yes, they were brothers in that regard, but only in that. Because there was a different spirit about Ahab and a different spirit of Jehoshaphat. A very interesting thing. And it was a very convenient league that they had uh, joined together because now they were going against a, a common enemy. And isn't that true? Sometimes there can be two enemies, but when they've got a greater enemy, these two enemies will say, you know what, let's just put our differences aside. We've got bigger problems. And that is true in, world, in the world today. 
It's true in the world today. If there's a bigger enemy, people forget about their differences. Look, we got to get this guy off our tail because he's driving us nuts. And if we don't do it, he's going to take over our country. And then he's coming after you. So let's join together. We'll like each other for now until we kill this guy. And then we'll go back to hating each other. Sound good? And everyone says, yes, sign the peace agreement. And they do. And they sign it. And then they violate it. But anyway. But what does Ephesians tell us? Concerning this Jehoshaphat, in Ephesians 5 it says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Jehoshaphat shouldn't have been joining him, he should have been exposing him. What does it say in Proverbs 24, verse 20? For there will be no respect or no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin of those two can bring. And this word, I love this when it says, do not associate with those given to change. This word in the, in, the, um, in the original language in Hebrew, it literally means to change or alter one's disguise. And doesn't that sound familiar with what, what, what would just happen with Ahab in battle? What did he do? He disguised himself. He was willing to be the chameleon. He was willing to do anything he could to slip out from underneath this judgment that God had passed on. He thought that he could elude God's prophecy God knew what was going to happen and he even tried to disguise himself and Jehoshaphat I mean what was he thinking they're going to come after the king right (laughs) and and, and now the only one wearing the kingly robes is the guy who was innocent who was actually a pretty decent guy and Ahab says hey I'm going to disguise myself and put myself in armor like everybody else but you wear the robes and the kingly robes (laughs) okay and he does and he almost, it almost cost him his life, didn't it? It almost, yet God, but God intervened. I love it. In Proverbs 17, verse 11, it says, An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. And isn't that what happened? In the, as as they, uh, the scripture here peels back the the, the supernatural veil, and we see the very throne room of God. Isn't that exactly what happened? A cruel messenger will be sent against him. Yes, a cruel messenger, an evil spirit, is going to intervene and take control of the minds of all of the prophets that Ahab had on his payroll. And they all prophesied the same thing because they were all under the same delusion. But one guy, Micaiah, was not one of those people. So Ahab was an evil man, although he did have seeds of humility in his heart. And his wife Jezebel, she was a devil worshiper. Yes, she was a devil worshiper because any, any god, lowercase g, that is worshipped in the world other than God himself is the power behind that god, lowercase g, is a demonic entity. Yes, and let me just go on record and say Allah is a demon. Those who, who worship Buddha, it's, an, it's a devil. Those who follow the Jehovah's Witness that, that believe that God is, that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he's not God in the flesh, the spirit behind that, re, that religion is demonic because it keeps you away from Jesus. And there are even some Protestant churches that are teaching 
whacked out things that are not found in the Bible that are also the same. How important is the Word of God? How important is it for us to study it and to understand the nature of God and the heart of God? Isn't it written for our nurture and our admonition? Isn't it here for us to grow by? And yes, it does offend us. And the old nature needs to be offended. Because <laughs> if it doesn't offend me, then I, don't, then I don't realize how sick I am. And if, I'm not, if I don't realize how sick I am, then why am I going to need a, a, a physician? And who is the grand and divine physician? Jesus, because we were all sick. I was sick. I was dying in my sin, and the Lord saved my soul when I wasn't even looking for him. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe that's happened to you. But the writing was on the wall for Ahab, and, and we shall see because he, he wasn't obedient. And Jehoshaphat would also be warned and rebuked of God for engaging with Ahab. In Second Chronicles 19, this is what God tells him. After this battle that we just read, God comes to him, uh, a man by the name of Hanani, uh, Yehu, I'm sorry, the son of Hanani, the seer, who was basically a prophet. He comes to Jehoshaphat after this whole thing is over with. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely from this battle to his own house. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles 19, the first three verses. And, and Yehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him, and he said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Question mark? Exclamation point? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, Jehoshaphat, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land, the, the images of Asherah, the, the wooden uh, symbols that they would worship from the land, and you've prepared your heart to seek God, but you've done a really bad thing. And God rebukes him for it. And does God rebuke him because he hates him? No, he rebukes him because he loves him. Why did our parents you know, bring uh, judgment upon us, you know. Maybe, maybe they did a little too much, you know. But, you know, so we, we were chastened as children because our parents loved us, hopefully. I mean, some went over the edge and they had issues and problems and maybe even alcohol issues and people were beaten a little longer than they should have been. But you know what? I had the belt come after me many times when I was little. And I tell you right now, I am so glad my mother didn't listen to my whimpering and my crying. She loved me dearly. She still does. But you know what? She knew that I couldn't continue like nothing has happened. I had to be disciplined. And yes, it was painful. And I learned a great deal. I don't know about you, but I really learned from pain. I learned really quickly in pain. And I actually like it that way. I'd much prefer if I'm going in a wrong direction, Lord, just... Wake me up in the middle of the night and give me a terror. <laughs> if I'm doing something wrong, if I'm going in the wrong direction, Lord, you intervene and just shake my cage. I want that. I don't want to go against him. I don't even want my own emotions to go against him. I want, Lord, what do you have for me? What do you want me to do? I want to do that thing because I know that in that is the place of blessedness. I know that in obedience to your word, regardless, I'm going to be blessed. And in the end, I'm going to look back and go, wow, I can't believe you did that. You did that through me? He's like, yeah, and you didn't even want to do it. 
But I first made you willing, and then you did it. Notice that? He doesn't make you do something you're not willing. God has a wonderful way of changing your heart before he dispatches you to do whatever it is so that your, your, your life, you're like, I, I I'm going to die if I don't do this. And people have that kind of relationship. Do you want that kind of relationship with the Lord when he gives you something to do? It's like a fire burning in your heart. And you're like, God, I want to do it. I don't care what has to happen. I don't care if I offend everybody on the planet, including my spouse, including my family. If you call me to do it, I'm going to do it. God wants a person like that. And if you have a spouse that loves the Lord, they're going to say, they're going to be cheerleading you and maybe even going along with you and say, I know it's true and I've got the same heart and I'm with you in it. Oh, what a blessing when that happens. So in verse 5, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire of the word of the Lord today. So Jehoshaphat is very smart. He's thinking, you know, we better go before the Lord, go before Jehovah before we embark on this battle. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets. Now these prophets, these 400 prophets, these were normal prophets. These weren't prophets of Baal. Remember, Elijah executed those 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. That, that was already a, a, a not so distant uh, event in the life of Israel, but now he's got 400 men who are prophets, but they're on his payroll, and because they're on Ahab's payroll, they want to tell him and prophesy good things. Is the Lord angry with me today? No, the Lord loves you. You've done everything right. Thank you very much. You're the best king. May you live forever. But what about what I did yesterday, how I did that evil thing? The Lord forgives you, even though you haven't confessed. Let's not talk about that. But, you know, he really, really is delighted in you, and you're just the best. And he's going to bless you, man. Whatever you want, he's going to write the check. (laughs) And that's what these guys were. Yes, men. They were men pleasers. They were on the payroll. And Jehoshaphat said, is there still not a prophet of the Lord? Even Jehoshaphat had discernment enough to know that these 400 prophets were not on the up and up. And finally, you know, notice that um, in this strange confederacy that they have, he, he finally picks up, you know, Jehoshaphat picks up, these guys aren't really the Lord's prophets. What does it tell us in Amos 3, verse 3? It says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? They don't have the same spirit. Two totally different men. Can they walk together and be agreed? Well, they really shouldn't be walking together because they certainly aren't agreeing. And neither should they. And then the king said of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, this Micaiah. Ugh. Emphasis mine, obviously. The son of Imlob, whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. And yet it was true. He prophesied evil against Ahab because Ahab was evil. He needed to be corrected, but he wasn't willing to be corrected. He was obstinate and disobedient, and God had to break him. I desire to be broken. And the Lord's been doing a work. Has he been doing it in your life too? I really... Whether I like it or not, God is breaking me. I'm not saying I've been broken. I I, I can say that, but I can also say, yes, he's broken me, but he's breaking me. And ultimately, he will break me. Because I need this old, nasty rascal of this old nature to be submitted to him with all of my heart. 
And unless I'm broken like some, some kind of stallion that just needs to be broken. Have you ever seen a stallion who's a wild stallion and some cowboy to come and, and get this horse under control to finally where he could put the saddle on it and get on it and the horse is normal and, and acts like a horse that we see acts? The horse has to be broken. It has to know who the master is and who he isn't. And see, happy is the man, happy is the Christian man or woman who breaks. Didn't David say that? A broken spirit. Somebody who's broken is great in the hand of God. And I love that Ahab wasn't even trying to disguise his feeling about Micaiah. There was no filter. He wasn't going, no, he's really a good guy. No, he's like, I hate the guy. I can't stand him. He never says anything good about me. And isn't it true that often the things that we don't want to hear and the person who we don't like, that usually has, they usually have the best thing for us. Or it's possible that they may have something to say to us, even though we don't like the message, we don't like the messenger, but the message itself could be the thing that God wants us to hear. Are you open to hear a message that you don't want from a person you don't like so that God can reach you? He often will do that. And the truth hurts, doesn't it? It does. It hurts. The truth can hurt. And that's why we need to abide in the Lord and understand that the Lord can use anyone to speak. And if we aren't listening to the Lord ourselves, he may send someone to tell us. Then the king of Israel quickly called an officer and said, bring Micaiah. And so Micaiah comes and, and, and he basically uh, comes and, um, you know, and all the prophets prophesied saying, go up and prosper. The Lord will deliver it in your hand. And they finally bring Micaiah before them. And, and, um, and he's, Micaiah is even encouraged by one of the prophets to agree with the other false prophets. And Micaiah said this wonderful thing, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. That seems very normal and natural. That seems like the thing that any prophet should say, because otherwise you're a false prophet. And I love this. And so the king came to him and said, Micaiah, and you can almost hear the indignation in his voice, looking at him kind of narrowly and, and saying, Shall we go to war with Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? And Micaiah says, yeah, go and prosper. The Lord be with you. It's going to be great. Just, just do it. In fact, if you go now before noon, you can catch him by surprise. Just go now. God's with you. <laughs> That's basically what he said. He was jesting. And so then the king said, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And so then he said, I saw Israel. Now he gives them the true message that Ahab needs to hear. I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master and let each one return to his own house in peace. We're not doing very good on time. And the king said, verse 18, Did not I tell you that he would not prophesy good but evil? And then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne of heaven. And this is where it gets really interesting. And just bear with me tonight. Uh, because now we peel back the supernatural veil. And now the, the, the Micaiah gives us this supernatural scene. And this is really remarkable. 
He said, Here the word, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And God says, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall? See, God knew that Ahab was going to fall. Who's going to go tell him, persuade Ahab to go up and the, the, to the intent that God would have this man put to death for what he truly desired? Because he wasn't listening. God knew that in the counsels of his own heart. Was it his his desire to see Ahab pass from the scene? No, it wasn't. The Bible says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but he will allow the wicked to be put to death if the wicked refuse to listen to God. He says, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another one spoke. And then a spirit came forward, we assume an evil spirit, and we'll look at that here really quickly, came forward and stood before the Lord and says, I'll persuade him. And the Lord says, in what way? And he says, I will go and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord says, you shall persuade him, and also you shall prevail. So go and do so. Go out and do so. Now that sounds really weird, doesn't it? But it's not so strange. When we looked at Job, remember in the first chapter of Job, in verse 6, remember what happened in the heavenly scene? Again, we're, we're, we're getting a picture of the supernatural now. In Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, the angels, came to present themselves before Jehovah, and Satan also, what? Satan is able to approach God in heaven? Yeah. And guess what? He's still doing it today. He has to go before the Lord before he's allowed to do anything. That's what the Bible says. And it says, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But there's none like him on the earth. A blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job, does Job, Job, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased priest in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord says, give it a shot. Now, what advantage did God have? He knew Job. He knew his servant. And this may be hard for you to understand, but I know that there are times when Satan will go before the throne and say, I want to destroy this man. I want to do this. I want to do that. And God will say, oh, you do, huh? Well, I tell you what, you can do this, but you can't cross this line. That's your boundary. And guess what? He must obey because God is all-powerful. Remember, Satan is a created being. He's not, a, uh, he's not equal with God. He's not even equal with Jesus because Jesus is God. And what does it says? And, and, he, and he says, and, and so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. You can take away all of his possessions. You can kill all of his kids. You can take away his house. You can burn up his livestock. But you can't lay a hand on him personally. And Satan says, Great. I'm happy to do that, Satan says. Because I'm just bent on destroying the thing that you love, God. <laughs> and that, that's the heart of Satan. Even if he has a boundary, he's happy to destroy. 
He's happy to destroy anything that God loves. But now, notice in Job chapter 2, it says again, verse 1 of Job 2, Again there was a day when the sons of God to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also coming among them to present before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered and says, From going to and fro and from the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to his face. And the Lord says, Behold, he's in your hand, but you can't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of the foot of his head to the crown of his foot. And he, and he, he took for himself a potsherd, Job did, in which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. It was so painful. And why do I bring this up? Because there is this uh, evil entity, Satan, our adversary. And as these angels are presenting themselves, one says, I'll do it, I'll persuade him. I'll be a lying spirit. And the Lord says, okay. These people, these angels, these demons, they are on a leash. Do you see that? They can't just do anything. They're, they're not like individual agents do, doing their own will. They have to go before God to say, God, or Jehovah, I want to do this. And God, for purposes that we can't understand. And doesn't he use this stuff to refine us? Doesn't he use these things to get us to, and sometimes it makes people bitter, sometimes it makes them better, but we won't know where we are gonna, what we're going to do until we are in the situation ourselves. There's something about the trial of affliction that brings out either the worst in us or the best in us. In God's heart, his desire is for it to bring the best out in us, but Satan is always hoping because he doesn't know the mind of God. God is omniscient, he knows all things. But Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. So God knows that he's going to do all those things to Job. He's going to allow it to happen. But at the end, Job is going to say, I used to hear you, but now I see you with my own eyes. Now I get it. And the Lord restored Job double of all that he had. And that's a true story, folks. That's not just some kind of, you know, godly parable. Jesus spoke of Job as a real person. This is a real person. This really happened to him. And it's there for our encouragement because guess what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, meaning the Spirit of God. You don't have to fear the devil. You don't have to fear Satan for what he might have up his sleeve. Trust me, if you pray and you're a believer in Christ, you can rest in the wonderful grace of God and just keep your eyes on him, no matter what happens to you. Because guess what? The sun shines on the wicked, and, it's sun, and the sun shines on the righteous. And if you're in Christ, you're righteous. Even in spite of our performance. By the blood of Christ, he sees us in Christ, and therefore we are righteous in God. Even in spite of all that. In Revelation, and we're probably going to have to stop here, and I, and I forgive me for going long, I always do. I really love this. <laughs> In Revelation chapter 12, just we'll stop here. 
and we'll pick up here as we begin Second uh, Kings next week. But just want to end with this one thing. Actually, turn there with me. Revelation chapter 12, we'll end here in this passage. We're just going to look at verses 7 through 12. Because as we're looking at this dialogue in heaven about this, about this lying spirit coming from the very throne room of God, this de- demon that is uh, basically asking God, you know, I will go, and God says, you're going you're to do the job. Because all those prophets that Ahab has, they're, not, they're on the payroll. They're gonna, they want to please their master. They, wanna, they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. They want to make sure that they're employed for some time. So they're going to tell him everything he wants to hear. But you go, to, and he gives them, and he goes, and he, this demon, this spirit, uh, infiltrates these 400 prophets. And they all agree because they're all false prophets. And yes... Now, the Bible tells us, and we believe through the Scripture, that even today, Satan is able to go into the very throne room of God. But it's not going to be that way forever. Because we know that in the future, when the, when the church is removed, and what we call the rapture of the church, and then this seven-year period of tribulation occurs on the planet, and then at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus physically comes down on the Mount of Olives with the church, with him. Somewhere about halfway, we believe, somewhere in that halfway of that seven-year tribulation period, somewhere halfway point, God is going to do this. Read with me in Revelation 12. And it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, who was Satan. And the dragon had his angels fought, and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Notice that. So the great dragon was cast out, that old, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God. Notice this. Who accused our brethren before the Lord day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death therefore rejoice o heavens and you who dwell in them woe to the inhabitants of the earth remember and the sea and remember this is happening right in the middle of this seven year tribulation period when god is pouring out his wrath for seven years on a world that has rejected christ and there comes a point where that war breaks out in heaven and God kicks Satan and his demons out and they are no longer able to go back again ever. That's it. And why does he and now that they're confined to the earth, they know that their time is short and so what are they doing? It's getting going to get really wicked on the earth and the and the, and the intensity is going to get ratcheted up to 20. Because no longer they have to stay on the earth. And do you think it's bad in that first three and a half year period? Oh my goodness, those last three and a half years of that seven year period are going to be the worst of the worst. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why? Because he knows that he has a short time. The devil knows the Bible better than we do. 
(laughs) He knows this word, and he knows what's coming, but it doesn't bother him because he wants to destroy and take as many down with him. He knows his judgment is sure, and the heart of Satan is, if I'm going to go down, then I'm going to take as many as I can whom you love. And that's all he can do. He can't overpower God, but what he can do is deceive and do whatever he can to take them out of his hand. And yet, there are people who reject him. And God says, that person has made the decision to reject me. And to their very last breath, they were blaspheming my name, shaking their fist at me, hating me, so I will give them their choice. Satan wins a soul. And he wins another soul. But yet there's a whole remnant that say, Lord, I believe in you. And I believe what you've done for me. And Lord, would you save me? Would you forgive me for all the sins that I've committed, Lord? Would you forgive me and cleanse me and take me as I am? Change me? And God says, yes. I can do that because my son has paid the price. You don't have to pay that price. You couldn't pay the price. I have paid the price and welcome to the kingdom of God. Have you all made that choice? I pray that you have. Because you know what? Just as much, we've talked a lot about some judgment, and nobody likes to hear about judgment, but guess what? The judgment of God is the other side of his love and grace. And that's just the way it is. You may not like it, but tough, because that's what the Bible says. He loves immensely, but when you reject and scorn him to your last breath, he has no other choice than to give you the alternative, and that's his wrath. So we have to make the decision. Ahab had to make that decision. And I don't believe he made the right decision because he was given a preview of what was going to happen to him. And he says, I can outsmart God. I'm just not going to put on my robe. They won't even know who I am. And yet some guy out in the field somewhere is pulling back his bow. He's probably got a goofy look on his face. And he just points up and he lets it go, having no idea where it's going to go. And where does it land? Right between the joints of the armor of King Ahab. What are the odds of that? (laughs) Think about it. God, that was a divine arrow. God didn't delight in having him die, but he chose before he went out in that battlefield, he already made the decision of his heart. I will not, I will not obey this God. In fact, I'm going to outsmart him. I'm going to put on something different. They won't even know. I'll just look like any of the other guys. And God says, oh, okay. Hope that works for you. Because I have a guy out in the field, you don't even know who he is. He's like 30, you know, 300 yards away from you or whatever, and he's just going to, twing! And it's going to hit you right there. It's going to take you out. You thought it was just some kind of random. Hey, listen, you know, I think of David and Goliath. (laughs) You know, when David takes those stones and he grabs that sling, and he's running for Goliath. I love that. He grabs that stone and he starts swirling it around. And you know what? I believe that even at that moment, even if David had a bad day, even if David's aim was just a little off that day, when he started running toward Goliath and he's got the... And he's running at him. And even if the rock fell out of his little leather pouch and went on the ground, I'm convinced that rock would have went... And hit Goliath right in the forehead and out the lights go out in Philistine. 
divine, and yet God's love. Don't you love the love of God? I hope you do. Because he loves you. And there's some pretty tough stuff in the, in the word of God. But you know what? It's all meant to draw us closer to him. Because it's real. We have to take a look at these things. And we can't just dismiss them. We have to look at it. We have to look at the truth. The truth hurts me. It hurt me when I first came to Christ to realize that I was a sinner. And someone told me that I was a sinner. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm better than him. And he's like, well, he's a sinner too. He's just farther down the road than you are. But you're a sinner too. And he had the gall to tell me that I was a sinner. And I'm so glad for that because it wounded my pride. And God's going, good. <laughs> Your pride needs to be wounded because there was another one who had a lot of pride too. And uh, he's going to get his. He said, I will, I will, I will, I will. But you know, let's turn that around and say, Lord, I will worship you with all my heart. Lord, I will give my life to you. Lord, I will give my thoughts over to you. I'll give you the, my legs and my hands and my feet and my ears. I'm going to give you everything that I am, and I just want to serve you, Jesus. I want to serve you and do what you want me to do, and what a fulfilled life you will have. Do you want that life? You can find out today. If, you're, if you feel like you're missing something, go before the Lord and say, Lord, I know I'm... 55, I know I'm 60, I know I'm 70, and Lord, I want more of you today than yesterday. Don't settle for today what God is doing. Look for tomorrow and say, Lord, what do you want me to do tomorrow, regardless of your age? And he's got something for each of us. Do you want to find out what it is? Do you want to surrender to it? Pray that way in the morning when you wake up. Let it be the first thing you pray, and then you watch what God does. You watch what God orchestrates in your life that day. And then you'll think about praying that way the next day. But you'll know if you're honest, he'll, he'll show you. Because he wants to bless you. And you will be a blessing. And doesn't it feel good to be a blessing? Would you rather be a blessing to somebody and help somebody and put a smile on somebody's face, be instrumental in building somebody up, or just the opposite? How do you want to go to bed at night? Do you want to go to bed at night thinking that, you know, I've blown it here, I've blown it here, I said this nasty thing, I turned my back on this, I turned my back on that, and then you're just laying there in bed and you're just... And God says, well, you have a decision to make every day. What are you going to choose? It's all about decision. And isn't that what obedience and love is? Submission. Submission to God. I know I've kept you, and I'm really sorry, sort of. Why don't we stand and let's pray. <laughs> oh, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. It is a double-edged sword. And Lord, as we look at the life of Ahab, Lord, I recognize, I see myself in him, especially, especially before I came to know you. And even now, Father, there's levels, there's areas, there's little places in my heart that I'm not even aware of yet where these little places that your light has yet to, shed, you know, to illuminate, God. And I invite you, and I pray that we would all invite you, Lord, to shine the light of your word on every area of our life and our heart. And Lord, just lovingly bring us to a submission to you, and Lord, and that we will just glorify you. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Lord, we need that. We need you, Jesus, every single day. Would you please do that work in our lives tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you all.